Hi everybody and welcome. Tonight I'm thrilled to be here with Chris McDougall and Eric Orton but just before we start I just have to say that this broadcast is sponsored by Karans, the sports um, and running supplement that I've just started using. Check out the link, um, I'll just pop up the picture just here and uh, yep, there it is. Sorry, it's covering Eric's head. I'll just pop it up here and if you click top left, um, there'll be a link to buy with 40% off and Eric's beautifully modelling it just there. So it's a supplement, um, it's won awards for recovery. So, sponsored by Karans, got that stuff out of the way and we'll be talking more about nutrition and supplements um, during the course of this broadcast. So, I'll just introduce our wonderful guest tonight. We've got the author of the seminal and one of my favourite books, Born to Run, Chris McDougall. Hey Chris, now we can hear you. <laughs> and uh, we've got also coach, world-renowned coach actually, Eric Orton, um, who is the author of The Cool Impossible because they have both written this sequel to Born to Run together, Born to Run 2. So welcome guys, how are you doing tonight? We're doing great, but we have to still once again, turn our psychic attention to your son, Finley, who's not feeling well. Yeah. And I think that is, there's something about the universal brain that I think, I think just sends healing energy. So everybody's watching this. I don't know if it's in the present or in the future. Let's just send a little healing thought to Finley tonight, right? Oh, thank you very much. It's always a bit tough when a toddler's ill because they can't really tell you what's wrong. He just keeps going, Mao. Mao, yeah. Mao, because he's got yeah. all these ulcers in his mouth. That just means ice cream, popsicle, ice cream. Yeah, he just wants ice cream, really, doesn't he? And meow, meow on repeat on YouTube. <laughs> it's a nightmare. <laughs> um, so, so thank you so much, you guys, for coming on the show. Um, it's absolutely fantastic to have you here, and it's brilliant to read another book from you guys. Um, so, first of all, what motivated you guys to get together and write this? A couple of things. One was that it was the realization that this experiment, which started 15 years ago, has ha now had enough, enough longevity to say it works. Uh, you know, when I started working with Eric, I was a serious doubter. And, and I think a lot of the doubt comes through in the book Born to Run. Like, I'm just like a beginner at the time of writing that narrative. I think this stuff works. I can't say for sure, you know, I, I always felt, I feel like the uh, the guy in the back of the plane, like, oh, the pilot had a heart attack. Who can land the plane? Like, okay, I'll, I'll land the plane this time, but I don't know how to fly. But now it's been 15 years of flying, 15 years of following Eric's advice and realizing everything he had predicted in 2004, 2005 uh, has come true. And his prediction was, if you change the way you run, you can enjoy it and run happily and healthfully forever. And so I figure a decade and a half later, yeah, um, that proves he's pretty much on the ball. Mm, I really do love how the book is about enjoying running rather than always pushing to go faster or further. Um, it, I really like the quote, evolution doesn't reward pain, it rewards joy. And all of a sudden that, that really struck a chord with me. Um, as a coach, is that something that you have a bit of difficulty sort of, um, like injecting into your um, coaches, Eric, Does, is, is everyone all about like, not, when they first start, all, it's all about pain? It's all about, yeah, it, not at all, because it's, it's you know, pain is not a good thing and, and struggle is not a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that might sound odd when I coach ultra runners, um, but 
it, it's it's all about knowing what's appropriate and and feeling and and having the awareness of what what is appropriate and and pain and discomfort and doesn't mean you're not challenged um but it's a challenge in an appropriate way based on your own level of effort if we're talking kind of you know intensity and and that type of thing but it's also again having that awareness of your body and like chris mentioned you know changing behavior and that that's not only just changing form and adding some strength but maybe looking at adding variety in what types of runs you're doing that can really create immense joy in how we feel as runners yeah, I think nobody's going to not want that more joy in running, can yeah. you? Um, and on reading the book, it did seem like here's our chance really to discover our inner running superpowers. Um, so uh, I'll just read this quote, actually, because it's really nice in the insert here. Um, it says it's going to teach every new every runner, new or experienced, how to master humankind's first true superpower and tap into hidden reserves of strength and stamina. So, so yeah, is, is that the basic premise of the book? Is, is that what you'd say? And, and how on earth do you go about doing that, if you can answer that in a nutshell? <laughs> yeah, I think the thing about it, Claire, is that where running has gone off the rails is we've turned it into this necessary evil, this sort of antidote for whatever else we've done bad in our lives, you know? So, okay, I've been sitting in a chair all day, I better run. Or, you know, I ate a bunch of pasta for lunch, I better go run. It becomes this, this like punishment. And unfortunately, that's just so different than what the running experience has been historically for humans. You know, when you think about the fact that until very, very recently in our timeline, we relied on our own bodies for, for everything, for any kind of communication or transportation. Like you didn't call somebody, you walked over to their home and spoke to them. You know, you didn't uh, hit a button for your food. You went out and you chased it and you wrestled it and you brought it home by yourself. So we are creatures of movement and that is our natural state. Now, the thing about that though is that if that kind of movement was unpleasant, at some point we would stop doing it. So we would be extinct. You know, if fish did not really enjoy swimming, fish would disappear. You know, if birds didn't like flying, they would disappear. They take joy in the power that is, uh, is, is their strength. And for us humans, it's easy to do that as well too. But we need to get away from that. Running should be painful if you're doing it right and revert back to running should feel excellent. And that's the upward spiral that the, the more you like it, the more you do it, the more you do it, the better you get, the better you get, the more you like it. That's the upward spiral. The downward spiral is I'm sore and I'm injured. I don't really want to do it. It's unpleasant. And you go down and down and down. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and there's, yeah, there's lots of information, isn't there, about how to run further, how to run faster. But I really felt like your book really touched on harnessing the things that we've already got and one particular thing that I saw in this book that I haven't seen in many other books is this thing called movement snacks can you just maybe Eric can you just explain a little bit about movement snacks and, and why did you decide to call them that because it immediately made me think oh I'd like a chocolate well we, that the movement snacks term came from our good friend Julie Angel mm -hmm. which is a she's a parkour guru and movement specialist, and we we like the, the the sound of that and the purpose of that. And it's it's essentially simple movements, whether they're strength skills or mobility type of movements that you can do simply anywhere, anytime throughout your day. That 
is going to really amplify and lead to that joy of running that again is very potent but simple and fun to do and that's that's kind of the whole premise is that we want that these simple but from a coaching perspective very very potent yeah if I can ask you a question, have you ever trained with a parkour troupe in the UK? No, but it would be really fun because it, it just looks really fun, doesn't it? Moving fluidly through your environment the fastest way possible. Are you are you in London? No, I'm uh, near Peterborough, which is like two hours from London. <laughs> okay, well, this would be worth the train ride because uh, Parkour Generations is, I mean, the UK is really the center of where the really interesting teaching and parkour is going on. Cool. And it's a terrific woman named Shirley Darlington, who leads an all-female parkour troupe that will train. And, and I think she's really, I, I worked out with them one time, and their way of warming up was to do things like form a circle, and then they would kind of crawl toward the center of the circle, and then slap hands, and then crawl backwards again. And watching this warm-up, thinking, this is so much better than what runners do. Because runners stand around, they kind of like yank a leg, or they lean against the wall. It's not dynamic, it's not energetic. And this got the entire, entire chain moving. I think that the parkour athletes have really zeroed in on this kind of movement snack mentality. Yeah, definitely. I would agree. And, and some, it reminds me, that type of movement reminds me of this project called Bro Project Awesome that Danny Bent runs. Um, I went to Love Trails Festival one time and at about six in the morning, I just heard this booming music. Um, and I know you guys really like music as well. We'll come on to that in a second. Um, and there was this really booming music and I was like, I've got to find out what that is. And I found all these people sprinting up a hill to then slide on slippery tarpaulin all the way back down again. And that seemed to me <laughs> an absolutely fantastic way to do hill reps. And we finished off with a giant like group run with these flares. And the people at the front had these different colored flares and we all legged it down the hill and back up again in this kind of cloud of smoke. And it was just the most joyous, fun activity um, and so it was really nice for me to read in here that you you do certain moves or certain exercises when you're trying to um, reset yourself to the beat of a certain song don't you could you just um, explain a little bit about that yeah that was um so here's the thing about it is you know I feel like in some ways I'm Eric's best collaborator and worst nightmare <laughs> because uh, we work really well together I give him honest feedback but I'm also an annoying pain in the ass with a very limited attention span. <laughs> and so if Eric says, look, these 10 exercises will transform you. I'm like, 10? <laughs> no, no, dude, dude, it's going to have to be two. And he's like, can we settle on three? Fine, three, that, that kind of thing. And so, you know, heart rate monitor training is extraordinarily effective. Uh, using a metronome, for instance, to figure out your cadence, very effective. I don't like that stuff. You know, you, you see how long it took me to figure out Skype tonight. You know, like, <laughs> do not get anything involving buttons because I'll screw it up. <laughs> and so my challenge to Eric was, look, if we want to teach perfect running form to people, how can we do it in a way that is foolproof? You know, movement does not lend itself well to language. You tell someone what to do, tell them to, to scratch their nose. Well, you know, is it right hand? Is it left hand? Is it a lot? Is it a little? So we wanted a way we could say, hey, this is perfect running form that you cannot mess up. And the other trick was, how can we do it without any kind of apparatus? And so what we came up with was, well, the way to teach foot strike and cadence is number one, if you run barefoot in place, you can't land on your heels and you can't overstride. Mm -hmm. And number two, if you play a song like Rock Lobster, which is 90 beats per minute, you'll have 90 beats per minute per leg. You'll get that 180 beats per minute 
uh, cadence that he went for running. And then rock lobster is like the barnacle. It's the, the limpet that burrows into your brain. Once you hear it, you can never unhear it. Yeah. And so we thought the best way to teach perfect running form is say, hey, take off your shoes, back against the wall, put on rock lobster and run in place. And the, the last element of it is, is that you may be awkward and nervous and self-conscious when you start, but after three minutes, and we've done this with groups all over the U.S., after three minutes, people are just rocking out and bopping. Like the joy and the fun and the dance re-enters the running. Yeah, it's really, it's a really fun way to teach it as well. And and I am going to do that. And and all the way through the book, there's just little nuggets like that that you can easily go, oh yeah, I can try that actually. Yeah, I can try that. And you can kind of dip in. I know you say you've got to do your seven tenants. You've got to do all of them, but you can. There are things that you can just try, which is really good. Um, but it's interesting, Chris, that you said that you've been um, collaborating with Eric and uh, you're like his best and worst nightmare over the years um but um eric kelly has a live question for you she said um well to both of you actually she says have any of your thoughts or theories actually changed over those 15 years um well for me chris mentioned heart rate and i've, I've always used heart rate with my athletes you know i've been coaching for 25 years and Oddly enough, as technology has improved, so to speak, so we think, I've found that the heart rate monitors become less and less accurate. And so I've gravitated more and more to some heart rate, but a lot of perceived exertion. And like we also mentioned in the book, um, using more speed um, and combining and, and really the overriding umbrella to all of that is helping people to really understand how they feel so they, they, they gain all this knowledge with every type of run that helps them. Yeah, that's, I, yeah. I was say for me, believe it or not, the great oracle of wisdom that I keep relying on, believe it or not, is friggin' Barefoot Ted. <laughs> uh, Ted is a guy that whenever he opens his mouth, my eyes immediately start to roll back in my head. Uh, but then like six months later, I, I look back on something he said and realize, oh my God, like I'm living it. Like he's right. And one sterling example is that I went to help Ted when he was running the Leadville Trail 100. And so I crewed for him and then paced him over the last 13 miles. And at that last aid station, you know, people come into that tent in mile 87 or so, and they're just done. They're blasted. It's, it's three o'clock in the morning. They've been running since the previous day. Take them through the tent. And he's like a diva. He's, he's like, a, he's like a, a Hollywood goddess walking through the tent, throwing open the tent and, hey, everybody. It's like he just woke up and found a surprise party. And I'm blown away by his energy. And he's moving fast. Like he finished that race in 24 hours, wow. which is very, 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 very fast, wearing his own homemade sandals. And I'm like, dude, you must have been training monster miles for this. And he goes, yeah, I was doing 25 miles a week. I'm like, wait, dude, you did five a day and took two days off and you're killing the Leadville Trail 100? And he goes, oh, so I'm not interested in the limits of what's painful. I only explore the limits of what's pleasurable. And I'm like, dude, shut up. But I thought about it and he's on the money. His idea is he gets to that limit when it's no longer pleasant and stop, walk home. And he's always on that upward cycle. So that, that's the kind of thing where if you told me that 10 years ago, uh, it would have bounced off my head. But I, I really feel he's on to something that is physiologically and evolutionarily true. Mm. 
that we need to have that sense that our body is getting stronger as opposed to being uh, destroyed by the exercise. And I've really taken that on board. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting. That reminds me of another quote from the book. You're um, like, this is about wearing shoes, I think. You're trying to block it out, not drink it in. Um, that seems to me a, a similar sort of mindset to Barefoot Ted. I, I think you're exactly all in the money, Claire. That's, that's it. I think, unfortunately, if people are looking at running as a discipline or a punishment, then when you're punished, you try to block it out. And so people put in their, you know, their ear pods and they're listening to music or they're looking at their watches or they're trying to distract themselves from the sensation. And everything we recommend, everything from your diet to your footwear to your form, we're saying be more aware, sense more and you'll enjoy it more. Yeah. And I thought it was really interesting as well to focus on running better, not longer. And particularly that you noticed that the Raramuri runners, they run fast first and then they run longer. They don't kind of start off slow. In particular, you were talking about the children in particular. Um, uh, so, yeah, I just thought that was really interesting because we always hear in the UK, it's always like, oh, yeah, start off really steady and then speed up when you get there. But actually, maybe park run at full pelt is the best way to start. Um, is, is that something that you both agree on and, and preach um, in your coaching well, or is it just for the Raramuri runners? No, I mean, this, this is this is where I, I start to geek out on coaching. And what I'm really excited about with the book for a lot of veteran runners is that and especially those runners maybe looking to do ultras or have dabbled in ultras where they're maybe not seeing improvements where maybe what's lacking is a speed development that they're not fast enough to improve their overall ability to see gains out on the trail for long periods of time. So I think in general, what I see what's missing in a lot of age group runners is having that speed development. Not only does it help really catapult your performance, but adding that intensity in an appropriate way really helps your body to feel good. It promotes lubrication in our body. It, it reignites all those coils and springs and rubber bands in our body. And we don't realize how good we can feel. And th that kind of tenet that you hear, hey, you know, speed is maybe what causes injuries. I would maybe put it out there to maybe start to realize that a lot of dysfunction and injury comes from running poorly slowly. Yeah, just dragging along and not pinging along like yeah. the fascia in our muscles supposed to, you know, be elastic exactly. and make us do. I thought it was really interesting the way that you say in the book that the secret of running is strength, not speed. So like in order to 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 get to that speed, you've got to work on your strength. Um, and that was something that seemed to people seem to want to buy with a shoe, isn't it? They want to solve things with a shoe or a piece of gear or some some other thing that they eat maybe, but actually you've got to put in the work and you've got to do the strength. I would I would only object to the word work. Uh, yeah. I think because we again we have this mentality that if it feels good, then we shouldn't be doing it. We're getting away with something. Mm. And I think the reason why we focus on things like movement snacks or art exercises is we want them to feel as joyful and playful as possible because get anything you like, you're more inclined to repeat. Anything you don't like, at some point, you're looking for an exit strategy. But here's one simple one that Eric came up with. Well, two. So one is pogoing. Oh. You know, this idea of just, oh. just pogoing as if you're jumping ropes, bang, 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 you know, and you can like sing a little ticker song in your brain <laughs> if you still remember that from Winnie the Pooh. 
but you should be feeling like, hey, I'm not even trying. My body is just bouncing. Yeah. Another thing it says is to just balance on your forefoot on one foot and try to hover the other foot in the air. And that's something you can do if you're waiting in line at the salad bar. You know, just balance on one foot and hover around a little bit. Are you waiting for your coffee to get done? Yeah. It takes but not two afterwards, seconds. That would <laughs> right? add, add some more challenge to it to get, get balance your platter. But little things like that are fun little challenges that activate your entire physiological chain and are really working on building up your strength. Yeah, actually, it's funny that you said that because when I get excited or like when I've eaten too much chocolate or caffeine or something, I often go downstairs and just like bounce in front of my husband and go, Steve, Steve, this, this, this. And he's like, calm down. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine <laughs> but I really enjoy doing the bouncing so yeah I think it's great that you said that <laughs> um, I feel like a little video of you doing that should be playing in the background oh, yeah. of this the entire a meme yeah <laughs> um, right. we've, we've got another a question here from um, uh, Tadua's Cantwell um, they say uh, they just started running and they have been focused on hill repeats and upping their cadence um, when when do I know when to start to do lower heart rate runs? Um, how long will it be until the heart rate comes down? Um, so yeah, uh, shed any light on that, Coach Eric? Uh, first off, hello to Tad. He's uh, he's one of my followers too. I know he was going to be on today, so <laughs> cool. thanks hey, thanks Tad. for coming on. Um, and so, what was the question? Um, when, yeah, when... he's just started running and been okay. focusing on hill repeats and upping yep, the yep. cadence. Um, but how does he know when he can start to do some lower heart rate runs? <laughs> oh, uh, dude, you're working me too hard. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I would definitely start doing some easier runs as well and, and try to make them as easy as possible. And it goes back to maybe what, what Chris brought up about that, that word work. You know, what happens when we change our mindset from, hey, I'm going out for a workout to I'm going out for practice? Just notice how that completely changes the purpose of what we're doing and seeing this as a practice. And especially for a beginning runner out there, learning to make most of your runs as easy as possible should be the goal. It shouldn't be seen as a workout or a way to lose weight or a way to gain fitness. Practice the skill first. Go out and try to make it as easy as possible, and then apply, apply the barefoot Ted principle. Is once it starts getting uncomfortable, stop and walk. Mm. Yeah, that's really but, interesting because it, it says laziness is like basically in the book infers at some point that the laziness is actually a survival instinct. Like, why would we expend a load of energy if it's not necessary? And and I think that really struck a chord with me as well. It helps you to be a bit kinder to yourself. Um, so yeah, it helps you to be a bit more like Barefoot Ted maybe. But one thing about Ted though, it should be pointed out and, and also speaks to Eric's point, which is that an easy run or a slow run doesn't mean a sloppy run. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if Ted, who's now working on high cadence and hill repeats, if he thinks an easy run is the opposite of that, that's where he's going to go astray. Mm -hmm. uh, but the same kind of attention to form and detail that he's honing by going uphill just translate that into the flats and he's good to go mm -hmm. but what unfortunately a lot of people do is that on an easy run they feel like oh well now their cadence slows down so instead of you know 90 strides per leg they're doing like 30 and that's where the the, uh, the problem creeps in but if you can maintain that same high cadence um on an easy run 
you're, you're golden. Yeah, because I thought it was really interesting the way that you guys say that um, the previous kind of scientific kind of doctrine has said, oh, everyone just runs in different styles. You can't teach it. We'll just go and run. Whereas Science. every other sport that anyone does, there's like a manual, there's a technique, there's people coaching it, training it, training in technique. So, yeah, I just it would just be good to hear a little bit about that, about what is good running technique is is like do you have like a little list of things that we should be doing first of all i just gotta spout off about the <laughs> the science you know like when the hell did that ever come up oh yeah you know scientifically this is people posing as scientists there's no science that says do whatever the hell you want and you're good because that makes no freaking sense no real scientist on on earth whatever sign on to the philosophy that physics don't apply to the act of running it applies to every other human motion you know, but not not the act of running. So to me, that philosophy that don't change your natural gait, you know, just do what you do, to me is a direct out offshoot of marketing by shoe companies. What shoe companies decide to do is step into the correction space as opposed to the protection space. So back when we had simple soles beneath our feet, mm -hmm. which protected us against like cactus thorns and rocks, we were doing great. Once, you know, the mad scientists in the Nike labs decide, hey, let's inject some foam in there and see what happens. You know, let's put in some wedges and see what happens. That's when things started to become problematic. And that's when we started to get this mentality that you, the runner, you don't need to change anything. You just have to buy something. You know, you don't have to change your form. You just got to buy this new shoe. So to me, that makes no, no freaking sense. You know, you never saw a dancer or a swimmer or a basketball player to just decide, hey, I'm not gonna worry about form. I'm just gonna do what I do. Because that person is called an ex-athlete. So that's why it's, it's really kind of very simple. Let's remove the shoe as the cure-all and let's get back to the behavior. Mm. That's my sermon for today. Yeah, I, th I was gonna, I've got this question down to ask you guys both. I was just wondering, because obviously, well, not obviously, I don't know this, but it would be very hard to run here in the UK in the winter and on all sorts of pavements and sharp stones actually barefoot barefoot um so you know a, a minimal shoe would be a good addition to your toolkit so what shoes are you both currently running in if if you do at all uh get Gerard. yeah um so yeah i mentioned when we first got on you know we have um, quite a bit of snow already this year and so you know it, for me Winter running becomes great because now I really can do all my runs in a really true and middle environment because I don't have the mountains and the rock where I need more protection. So I, I love this time. And most of my runs right now are done in zero shoes. Um, and I, I love the, the Mesa Trail, which gives it's a little bit more lugged trail shoe, which, again, it gives me just just enough grip on the snow that I can use even on the road when, when it's covered in snow. So it's, it's a great time for me to just really develop that natural, natural strength that takes me into the, the summer of mountain running. And so would you ever wear a shoe with padding? You know, like you mentioned that winter you wear a completely zero shoe um, with hardly any, any foam in, in there, but would you ever do, you, if you're going in the rocks in the mountains, would you ever have a bit of padding at all? Yeah, so um, absolutely. You know, our, our, rock, our rock and mountains are very young, so they're very jagged and very, very technical and very, very pointy and then and very technical. Um, so 
I've got my my whole goal with, with myself with minimal shoes is to develop enough strength and experience to be able to go as minimal as possible, but also have the protection that I need for those mountain runs. So I've gotten myself to the point where my maximal shoe is considered a minimal shoe in the industry. Mm -hmm. So my maximal shoe is, for example, a a Solomon S Lab Sense 6, the Killian shoe, mm -hmm. or the, the Innovate uh, G270 that again, are in the industry minimal shoes, but for me, they feel maximal, but I'm still getting the natural feel and the protection I need, but I've built myself up to that. Yeah. And then all my other runs are zero, kind of real minimal environment. So I'm doing a lot of different things throughout the week. Awesome. I think the thing about it, Claire, is that there's always a trade-off, mm. that what you gain in cushioning, you sacrifice in sensation. Mm. And so the question becomes, how much sensation are you willing to sacrifice? Uh, right. Eric is a much better stylist than I am. I feel like for me, form is a lesson that I'm constantly learning. And I got to be really careful about it because I'm, I'm a, I could backslide like that. It doesn't come naturally to me, uh, which is also why I like it because, you know, I also play basketball and seven out of 10 of my shots suck, <laughs> but, but three are pretty good. You know, and so it's, it's striving for that fourth good shot that really makes it worthwhile. So those three feel fantastic. And then the fourth, uh, and it's always that striving to get more consistency. That's what, so that's why I like thinking about style when I run, because I love the sensation of almost getting it all the time. However, to me, an impediment to that is cushion footwear. If I'm not getting feedback from my lower body, I, I don't know if I'm doing a good stride or not a good stride. So I've actually become like a more of a fire breathing maniac than Eric is about this, <laughs> we decided to recommend shoes. Because I, I adamantly would not ever, ever weigh in on shoes in the past because I thought, I'm not playing that game. I'm not getting involved in the marketing. But for this point, this seemed ridiculous. We can't tell people, hey, you need to buy the right shoes, but we're gonna keep it a secret which ones they are. <laughs> so we argued about this and Eric and I actually had different viewpoints. I thought, you know, zero shoes or Luna sandals, but nothing more than that, nothing more structured. And he's like, dude, that is a recipe for the emergency room for 90% of our people. Uh, it's too much of a transition. So we settled on the Ultra, which is a zero drop shoe with a certain amount of cushioning. To me, it feels like too much shoe, uh, but Eric feels it's a really good transitional shoe that maintains all the fundamentals that are necessary while still giving you the, uh, the kind of protection that's worthwhile. Because mm. can you, you know, say you've been used, used to like the Salomon Speedcrust 10 mil drop, quite a lot of pat, um, quite a lot of rise above the ground, a stack height, that's what you call it, isn't it? Um, if say you've been used to running in those for your entire running career, would you say to someone, yes, you can completely just go to ultra zero drop immediately? Or would you, like I always say, um, transition quite gradually, like maybe even over the course of a year? Um, what's your thoughts on that? We, we have different thoughts about that. Go ahead, you go, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you why you're wrong. Yeah, yeah. And, and neither one of our answers are right or wrong, really. It, it, it's, <laughs> um, well, but let me say this, and that was a poor way to say it, is that <laughs> I, I'm dealing with athletes who are not willing to go through what Chris would recommend as far as transitioning into a 
very, very, very minimal environment. They're just not in. So I, I, you know, that that's a battle that I'm not going to win. So there there's other ways to make that transition. And I'll give a perfect example of one of my athletes who is a, a professional ultra runner. She's come second TDS, uh, just broke the record at Uray 100, which is harder than hard rock. And during the week, she is in a very, very minimal environment for the majority of her runs. When we need faster mountain runs or longer mountain runs, she'll pick a, a higher stack height based on kind of what she needs for that day. And it's, it's not an either or, but they're both tools. And so to get back to your question, Claire, is that I, I would say in your example is that in the reason we suggested the ultra shoes is that that's kind of for most people, that's going to feel like a minimal shoe. Mm. And hey, do some of your easy runs in that mm. and just use it as strength training. Use it as a way to dial in your form and to feel form. And through time, whether you're doing our foot core program to develop foot strength or the form or the shoe transition through time, your foot is going to want to be in a more natural environment. And then at that point, you can start drifting away from that high stack height, 10 mil drop type of shoe because your foot's not going to feel good in it. Yeah, it's funny you said that because um, I have some 12 mil drop road shoes that I used to wear all the time for everything. Um, and I've been testing a load of ultras for my channel, testing like wide fit shoes and the ultras are just all zero drop and I love the wide fit. Um, but I had some some issues like with my feet and I thought that I couldn't go to zero drop, but I did and I was really enjoying it. And then I was having some issues with my left, um, like uh, the the soleus muscle in my left lower leg and um, I thought oh maybe it's zero drop um, so I went back to the 12 mil drop and I just found like my knees and hips suddenly really hurt after a run and I was like oh so then I went to a podiatrist and he gave me four exercises that I have been doing like dutifully um, apart from last week because Finley's been ill and ugh, get the excuses in there and it's going away so actually yeah the strength is way more the strength and the style and you know how you run is focus on better running and and not just flapping her out like a mad person so that's yeah it's about all about the strength isn't it it's not about the shoe um unless it's really and, high and, drop and real quickly getting back to chris you know chris's main priority is to run well in a minimal environment environment all the time so that's his goal and he that that's what he chooses to do, and you know that that's awesome. And I I wish I could be in that environment all the time. I just can't because it it hurts sometimes. And so I think it's all based on understanding that the further we get away from the ground, the more dysfunction is going to take place. And let that create your own philosophy around that. Yeah. I suppose sometimes there's also the argument as to like we're not the thin people we used to be when we ran a lot and scavenged around. But yeah, I know Chris has some thoughts on this because of being, you you talked about um, something to do with Shrek in the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm Shrek standing. This this idea, you know, again, I think we, we, uh, we keep trying to find rationales, you know, like, okay, what's well, good for them, but not for me. Maybe if I were this, but I'm that, you know, and even Eric's point, well, if I were running in a minimal environment like Chris, but dude, all I'm saying is that 
the idea is people do not want to sacrifice what they're doing or the volume uh, that they're doing. And to me, like that's, you know, we, we talked to a guy yesterday who was changing his shoes, but then he got plantar fasciitis. And like, oh, you changed your shoes. Did you change your form? Oh, no. Well, dude, changing the footwear doesn't change anything. You know, all you did was just change the thing you're landing on. You didn't change how you're landing. So, no, Claire, I, I think that one of the reasons we felt confident in writing Born to Run 2 was because I was the worst case scenario. I was the 240-pound, out-of-shape, overweight ex-runner who had been told to his face by doctors, you should move slowly. Moving fast is not for a body like yours. And I took that mentality into training with Eric. And then I realized, man, 15 years later, I'm bopping out the door doing whatever kind of miles I feel like. So, no, I think all of our bodies. And that's why we specifically filled this book with photographs, uh, which we did not have in our previous books. We wanted photographs to show everybody it's every kind of runner, whether you got two legs or not, whether you're any kind of height or age or body type, this is this is for you and you can be fine. Um, but I, I think the thing about it is I just love the fact that we can embrace running. Yeah, isn't that terrific? Um, that's actually right down the street from where I'm living now. Oh, wow. Uh, that's amazing. Yeah. So what we want to tell people is look, Look at running as a fine art, like a martial art or a dance. Master that first, then you can add as much protection or as little as you want. Mm -hmm. That's that very sound advice. Um, I've got, there's a couple of questions on the live chat. Um, I just wonder if you can uh, uh, enjoy answering these ones. We've kind of covered this one already. It's from, from Kelly. Um, she wants a few tips. I know you mentioned earlier um, low mileage ultra training. Um, so Barefoot Ted was only running 25 miles a week. She says she works 60 plus hours a week. That sounds terrifying. Um, mostly physical. So she says she's got the strength covered. But yeah, have you got like a, a top couple of tips for her with low mileage ultra training that you've gleaned from Barefoot Ted? Yeah, I'm, yeah I'll, I'll jump in. Yeah, I, I think um, that creating a sound structural system for any type of running is really what needs to take place. Very rarely has anybody run a race of long distance and had to stop because they were out of breath. Mm -hmm. It's because my foot hurt or my my leg hurt or whatever, you know, it, it's always a structural problem. So focusing on, and this is a general statement, but focusing a little bit more on quality over quantity can have huge gains for ultra running. It goes back to what we were talking about speed of, of that speed and strength foundation is so many people jump right into it and focus so much on having to go the distance that they're just breaking themselves down because they think they're doing what they need to, to do to cover the distance but it's creating that sound structural system that takes place that doesn't have to take a lot of miles. Mm, you know, I, I, I had one athlete who trained on five hours a week and it was top 10 at Leadville. Wow. So it, 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 it doesn't have to be this all or nothing long game mm -hmm. that we've been told. Hey Eric, for this athlete who's working 60 hours a week, would you suggest that she do a couple workouts a week where she builds in those 30 second sprints? Uh, this is something that Eric taught me right off the get-go that really changed everything uh, by just building a little bit of um, sort of random speed work into their into their runs. What do you, what do you think? Absolutely. And, and that, you know, that's kind of the premise of the 90-day program. But throwing in, it, it sounds counterintuitive. 
for an ultra athlete, but to do 30 second sprints, to do 30 second hill repeats is building that neuromuscular system and that strength. And what's key is that it, through faster, very short runs, we're recruiting more muscle fiber. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Building in up. long sustained efforts, you're building bigger muscle fiber. Mm-hmm. That's not very efficient. We want to invite more muscle fibers to the party because that's much more efficient, especially for ultra running. Okay, so Chris is exactly right. By doing short, fast runs, not only are you going to feel better, but it's it's attacking that structural and efficiency standpoint that's so crucial for any type of runner. Mm-hmm. And it's fun, isn't it, to run fast? Like I've been out Absolutely. feeling tired, thinking, oh, just plodding along. And then I'm like, hmm, there's a hill. I'm just going to like just run up it for a few seconds. And you and there's a joy in that. Like, oh, I'm doing something. And then you get to recover coming back down. It, it sounds counterintuitive, but it actually is a bit more fun, isn't it, to just do something in the session that's not just plodding along. Well, and it's what we did as kids. It's what the Raramari do with their their ball game. The kids start playing the ball game at a shorter distance at an early age. And it's how all the the elite pro development takes place. No one's in the middle school at a pro level doing a marathon. Mm. They're 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 crafting their 1500 meter speed. And and the development is speed and strength first and then as they get older, they go longer. Yeah. We have it the opposite way around. Yeah. It's like everybody wants to run 100 miles at the moment. I don't know if it's the same in America, but in the UK, it's like, right, we're going to run 100 miles. We're going to be ultra runners in a year. (laughs) And I'm always saying, no, take a few years. It'll always be there. Like, you don't have to do it right now. Do a half marathon. It's fine. (laughs) Well, and here's the deal, and this is just a tangent. Um, A lot of those runners who are jumping to that distance, don't have the raw ability to be able to run that distance. What's appropriate for them is to walk it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so they try to run it and they don't have the ability for it to be an easy enough effort. And they just start way too hard and they can't recover from that. And so that's where that speed development and that strength development, all, all of Kelly's questions come into this is that develop, develop that thing first. Yeah, that's really good advice. You're sort of shifting how I'm thinking about training for my two ultras later in the year as well. <laughs> um, um, and there's a, a question from Sarah Bussey as well. She says she just finished reading Born to Run 2 and she loved it, um, as well as Born to Run 1. Uh, great job, you two. Could you talk a little bit about stretching or not stretching to relieve soreness, I'm presuming after running or doing long stuff or, or quick stuff? Yeah, you're getting all my good questions here. Um, So, all right. So if we're excessively tight, that's telling us something. Okay. And tightness comes from muscle imbalance. And therefore, by just stretching that imbalance, you could actually be making it worse. Mm -hmm. And you're not attacking the problem. So the majority of tightness or lack of mobility needs to be attacked with a strength strategy and a stability. We have to have stability in muscle equilibrium before we can have mobility. 
And once we have that muscle equilibrium, it takes all the tightness away. So quick, quick story. I have an athlete, consulted with an athlete who had high hamstring tightness and low glute tightness that inhibited his ability to run faster and hills. And he kept stretching it, doing all this, what we would consider mobility and stretching work that made it worse. Mm -hmm. So he contacted me and we worked through on that call. I had him do three exercises that are in the book and it completely took away that tightness, but these were strength exercises mm -hmm. because it created that neuromuscular equilibrium. So tight, long story short, tightness is telling you something that needs to be addressed in strength training. Mm -hmm. You know, we have a, a saying we use. I actually got it from a guy named Tom Myers, who is a specialist in fascia, elastic recoil tendon. And he always says, uh, the criminal never stays at the scene of the crime. Yeah. So if your left Achilles is hurting, okay, the, the criminal that caused it is not hanging out in the left Achilles. It's somewhere else. And I came across, there's a blogger. She's a UK blogger. I don't recall her name. And she said something that really caught my attention. I read in one of her blog posts where she said, if you have a problem somewhere, as you're running, imagine it, imagine it's on the opposite side. So if your left knee is hurting, while you're running, imagine it's your right knee. You know, if it's your left hamstring, imagine it's your right hamstring. And the pain will go away. Mm. So my first thought is like, just like therapy did, no effing way wow. this works. <laughs> and then you try it and it works. And I, what you're just saying now, Eric, is now making that come together. I, I see what it is. It's because if there's a problem with your left leg, is probably caused by imbalance of something you're overdoing on your right leg. So if you pretend the pain is actually in the right leg, you're gonna inhibit that motion, you're gonna balance yourself out. And it does relieve the pain. So I think it really speaks to Eric's point. Yeah, something that's on one side is probably caused by something you're doing wrong on the opposite side. Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting, isn't it? Because you always, you know, you go to a physio and you go, it's here, and they go, you know, oh, massage that, or do that, or, or right. you'll try and stretch that. Or you get the massage gun out and go digga, 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 on it, and it's like, no, just go to do some strength. <laughs> um, uh, um, so the book obviously gives a few strength exercises for people to do. Um, but like if you've only got time for like, say, five minutes of strength every day, are there a certain few exercises that you would say are really essential or do you really have to do all of them? If I could just jump in quickly before that, before Eric, Eric will give you the right answer. I'll just give you my own personal <laughs> answer. This is where I think form solves everything. That looking at exercises is something you have to do or I only have five minutes. It's that, it's that idea that there's running and then there's all the other stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, there's running and then there's stretching and then there's yoga and then there's recovery. But to me, I think the reason why a guy like Barefoot Ted is successful, if you ever look at any pictures or video of Ted running, He's unbelievable. The guy is a master. You know, he is a beautiful runner. I think because he focuses so much on form in his barefoot form. And he's also super jacked. He's super fit. And so I think he gets his strengthening by the fact that every run is a strengthening exercise. So maybe the end game is there is a future in the short term where you don't have to separate them, where your running is your strength training and your strength training is your running. But I think, Eric, you, you do have some better, more specific strength exercises you probably recommend, though. Well, no, I, I like what you you said, Chris, is that, you know, we've talked about this before, is that really the most functional strength exercise for running is running. And if, if, if we can, you know, I call it strength running. 
you know, and so there's a lot that can be done while we're out running and all of the exercises that we propose in the book can be out executed while you're running. And so it's not necessarily meant to add a whole lot more time to your day or take away necessarily from the running you want to do. It's just now, you know, some of you may have be out there and you, you do your stretching routine before you, you go for your run. Well, now we know stretching might not work. So maybe introduce that word practice. And while you're out running, practice some of these, uh, of, of these leg exercises that are going to be so potent. And with your point, Claire, of, of five minutes, all of these exercises that are neuromuscular and not going into all the, the reasons why that's important. The key part of that is that when a neuromuscular exercise takes place, it happens quickly. So within two or three, four days, you're going to start to feel a difference. And so it doesn't have to take a lot of time. You know, as an example, you know, when Eric uses the term neuromuscular, this is really eye-opening for us. When we did this photo shoot in California, we got together this group of athletes and several of them, uh, like Chalice Popke and Jenna Crawford are extraordinarily strong, uh, successful runners. And then Eric would put, for instance, I remember with Jenna, he was having her do like a simple like wall squat and you watched her glute just started to shake. And Eric's like, that's not because of strength. She's like strong as, she's strong as iron. That's because the glute is just deactivated. Like the muscle isn't turned on, the muscle's there but it's lying dormant. And so the exercise, we actually just flip on the, the electricity, you know, turn on the switch and activate it. So, um, hey, Eric, would you say your number one is like the running lunge? Like, okay, you can only do one exercise, desert island pick. Would you say the running lunge? Aside from the form, the rock lobster in the form that we talked about earlier, yeah. The, the run lunge really is a complete body challenge that brings in every aspect of running. It's essentially a running exercise. And so the, the key to doing the running lunge is that it's gonna attack the individual's weakest link. So in one person, it could be their foot strength. In another person, it could be their glute. And so through time, you're gonna really attack your weakest link and create the stability where you need it. And again, it's it can be done it should be done within five minutes. It doesn't need to take much longer than that when it's neuromuscular. Yeah. I think we're convincing a lot of people to buy the book <laughs> to delve further into this intriguing and interesting um, kind of shift in how we're thinking about training and our mindset. Well, real quickly with what Chris said about Jenna and, and turning those muscles on is I would propose to everybody out there listening, you have enough strength right now you don't need more strength. You need more electrical system. Mm -hmm. You need more of turning the switch on, mm. and that completely changes how you go about strength training. Mm, cool. That's really interesting. Um, I'd love to talk more about that, but we're running out of time, and I do just yeah. want to mention the nutrition side of things. Um, there's um, page 62, I'm just looking at now. Uh, there's a two-week test. Um, 
it's not a it's not a diet it's a test and there's yes and no foods um uh yeah can you just explain a little bit about um why there's this two-week test and and why food is so so important because we focused really on like the sort of training side of things and turning the muscle groups on but actually what we put inside ourselves is just as important isn't it to um being a better runner and enjoying running more um so yeah what is it possible to say in a nutshell <laughs> what your views are on yeah. food? Sure, it is. Uh, you know, Eric's motto is athleticism is awareness. Just know what's happening. And that's why, for instance, you know, we advocate for a minimal shoot, get more sensation in. That's why we advocate for uh, focus on your gears. Like know uh, how fast you're, you should be running uh, by how much oxygen is, oxygen is coming into your system. And with food, it's the same thing. We got so many sources of calories like churning through our mouths all day that at any given moment, we don't really know why we feel a certain way. If I'm sleepy or if I'm a little bit sluggish or I feel bloated, well, what is it? You know, is it the food? Is it my sleep? And one thing that we can isolate is our nutritional intake. Like, let's just figure out what exactly, what kind of fuel we're bringing into our body. You know, if your car is sluggish, it's got something to do with the fuel to figure out what that fuel is. And the second element, which I think is very important as well, is almost all of us run because of our relationship with food. It's usually a, a prime mover why we started in the first place. Hey, I'm out of shape. I'm going to lose a few pounds or I ate this yesterday. I better run today or, you know, I, I only run so I can eat whatever I want. But somehow running is supposed to be a, a response to the food we're eating. So it puts us, I believe, on a very destructive cycle because you're never gonna catch up with those calories. You're constantly gonna be pushing yourself to the point of injury only as a way of counteracting the food you ate. So that's why we come up with the two week test. It's based on awareness. All we're telling people is, hey, take 14 days, strip out all the high glycemic foods, the foods that can cause your insulin levels to jack up, strip them out, and then gradually reintroduce them. Because what that's gonna give you is the same sensation with your body that minimalist shoes are giving you with your feet. You're now gonna feel the sensation and you're gonna understand, oh, so that's why I need a cup of coffee after I ate that sandwich because it jacked my insulin, you know? Uh, and that's what the two week test is. It's not a discipline, it's not a diet. It is like a factory reboot which allows you to become sensitive to the effect the food's having on your system. And then your choices might be different. Yeah, and you, you know the consequences, listen, if anybody puts a pint of Haagen-Dazs ice cream within eyeshot of me, I will kill that Haagen-Dazs ice cream. I'll murder it. Uh, but I also know what's going to happen. Yeah. Like I know that I'm done for the rest of the afternoon. So you know the consequences. And that's, that's a very healthy thing to do. It doesn't mean you never, ever eat it. It just realizes, okay, I'm going to eat it. I'm going to regret it, but I'm going to go for it this time. Yeah. Yeah. So no food, foods are off bad. And, um, and do you have any opinions on supplements? Because obviously this podcast is um, it's supported and sponsored by Karan's the blackcurrant extract um, from New Zealand, which has won awards and things for recovery. Um, what, what are your viewpoints on, on supplements? Maybe I'm prejudiced because I like everything that comes out of New Zealand, you know, <laughs> starting with the prime minister and, and, and heading downward. Uh, so I'm going, hey, it's blackcurrants and it's New Zealand. How bad can it be? Uh, so I, I honestly don't know. I personally feel that I like to dial in what I'm eating. Um, and I never really felt the need for any sort of turbo boost beyond actual food. Um, 
So that's that's kind of my take on it, is dialing your eating first, see where that goes. How about you, Eric? Where are you? Yeah, I, I'm the same way. I with it, I, I very rarely will take take a supplement. There's just a few that I take, but it's based on my awareness that I, I actually do feel a difference when I when I take it. And yeah. I think me, that's the key is that most of the stuff I've dabbled with, there's just no no change in how I feel. And I want to feel like there's a purpose behind what I'm doing. Um, for example, when I, I, I take Pinole and Chia and I, I have some kind of what a calorie drink that has, you know, minerals and, and some vitamins. And there's some very specific ways that I know that that's making me feel better. That's my motivation for taking those. And there's you know, three times as many stuff out there that I've tried that I just have felt no, no change. So for me personally, it's just, I need to know, or I feel that, that change or that difference in, in a, my purpose for taking it. Yeah. And if you can't feel anything, eating anything, then maybe the two week test is a really good thing to do to reset your body exactly. and see whether that supplement's having any effect on you. Cause you know, like, um, there's things like turmeric and things like that that can also help. Um, I think the idea behind the blackcurrant is there's a really high level of antioxidants in there that can help with um, uh, reducing inflammation and in particular DOMS after um, intense workouts and things like that. I, I definitely, um, I don't believe in supplements at all. I'm really skeptical about these things. Um, but I, I decided to take two before a half marathon that I worked really hard at. And it, it was really weird. Afterwards, I felt like my muscles were really silky. Um, it was really hard to explain. But then there's so many other things that come into play as to why I felt different to the last half marathon before that. So you never quite know. So I feel like now it's like a lucky talisman, like I have to take one every day just in case. <laughs> so I'm just trying that. And I think sometimes um, I've taken supplements before and then I've stopped after a while because I've just run out. And that's when I really notice the difference. It's kind of a, the other way around to doing it than you guys say, but I'm less good at feeling what's actually happening and I'm more likely to feel it once it's gone away. So um, I'm gonna do that for a bit with this supplement um, and, and just see what happens. I, you know, I think that's a very healthy approach, your idea. I mean, there's a lot out there. And I think one thing we reflect in the book is, hey, we don't 100% agree, we don't 100% disagree. Uh, there, there are several opinions. Here's an example of like running with music. Eric and I are adamantly against it. Really? But I look love around, like, it. It's really um, oh, yeah. energetic. You know Sometimes. the thing about it, though? Not all the time. That, that was like, like, you know what? Nobody ever ran worse with music, <laughs> you know? Like, no one ever busted out. Like, I will survive and ran worse, yeah. you know? It's, but maybe we're missing something here. And that's why we kind of outsource that conversation because we don't want to say, hey, our viewpoint is 100%, you know, handed down on stone tablets. And so same with what you're talking about with the supplements. I know that when um, Scott Jorick was running the Hard Rock 100, uh, and like a dumbass, he decided to play some pickup soccer with some school kids the day before the race, and he sprained the crap out of his ankle. Oh, no. And his treatment for it was a ton of garlic and turmeric. Mm. And he just mega-dosed on, on turmeric. And he said it made a significant difference. It reduced the swelling. And so if you're talking about something that comes out of the ground and you're feeling a improvement, I'd say pursue it. There's something there. Something's going on. Check it out. Yeah. 
Ah, oh, thanks guys, that's super, super helpful. Um, um, yeah, so that's absolutely fantastic. I'm aware that I've kept you for a long time now <laughs> and um, I just want to say a big thanks um, to you for your time tonight or this morning, this this afternoon, wherever it is for you in Hawaii and over in the US. Um, but yeah, um, how can people follow you and find out more about the book? Um, I've put links um, to the book in my film description below in the podcast show notes, but yeah, just uh, have you got Instagram or is there a website that people should go to how should people find out more and follow you yeah so um on the most most of the social channels we're under born to run world mm -hmm. and with that our website is born to run dot world and then we we both have individual social feeds but we're all they're all kind of intertwined right now and then on on YouTube, we have Born to Run World that has a lot of supporting um, video for the book. So, um, you know, kind of use that Born to Run World moniker tag um, for, for most of the social channels as well as our names. Awesome. I didn't realize there was video that goes through the book. That sounds super handy because there are pictures of all the exercises and explanations, but I always find a video really helpful. So, so thanks for that. That's really yeah. good to know because I, yeah. I didn't actually read that in the book itself, but I haven't given it a thorough look through yet. It was just, I only got it delivered on Monday. So I was like frantically reading it. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's a super interesting book. So definitely recommend it to everybody. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for your time tonight, guys. It's been absolutely fun fantastic meeting you and talking to you. Claire, you are really smart and fun and I really enjoyed this a lot and I hope Finley is just bouncing around like a maniac by tomorrow. I can hear him yelling in the room next door. <laughs> 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 yeah, but thank you very much. I'm sure he will improve very, very soon, especially because everyone's now thinking about him. Right? Terrific. <laughs> cool. Nice. Thank you, guys. Great. See you. Thank you. Bye. Bye.